All right. Um, all programs off. Set Skype to busy. Silence phone. Intro. Okay. And cue the music. Caminaste junto a mí en busca de un mejor destino para ti. Lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the third episode of the Inside the Journey podcast. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger, recovering from not being very good this week. Excuse and my we, voice. <laughs> and we are the dynamic duo behind Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto. This week, we are continuing from last week's talk about uh, what is going on with our documentary film. We are going to focus on my trip back to L.A., a year after the original Kickstarter project, and then Chicago, where we went to present for the first time in front of a live audience uh, portions of our film. In the fall of 2011, I flew back to L.A., where we were going to shoot some additions to the Kickstarter video from the year before, which was kind of fun because we had to line everything up in the same way that it was from the year before. With my couch and my table and everything. Yeah, so everything had to be set up just perfect so that it it would appear to be the same. And one of the things I say is that this is a story that I can't not tell. That I don't know any other way to deal with it other than to share it. That was an interesting moment, especially because you kind of pushed me on that. To And I remember you coaching me and just saying... You know, just talk naturally and whatever comes out, just think about what it means to you, this project and why you're doing this. And then it kind of just flowed and, and came out on screen. And I thought we got a really great moment there on, on film. Did you surprise yourself? <clears throat> I mean, was that something you said before or no? No, actually, I, I don't think I have said it before. I didn't say it in those words. I didn't say that, you know, this is something I have to say because I don't know how else to deal with it. And I think that that, that was sort of the, the truth, or that is the truth. I think it definitely is, because I think that's, to me, what attracted me to wanting to do this with you, is, is that sense that I got about, about why you were doing your blog to begin with. There's something to sort of giving your permission, yourself permission to say it, you know? It's, there's a difference between thinking it and consciously expressing it, yeah. Basically, I think what we got was you're guiding us through the beginning of your story, you know? Um, when we first shot the Kickstarter video, which we rely on for the documentary a lot, I didn't know all of your story. I mean, it, it has taken years for your story to unfold for you, and it's taken a, it's, it's hard to make it succinct and figure out what to emphasize, and, and I, I felt like... That trip was just about let's you know we've laid it out as best we can, but let's uh let's figure out some ways to help it congeal a little bit, you know, and so it's a lot of the narrative thread for that first intro piece right after we get done filming the additions to the the video for the opener, I went with uh 
someone we met at the 140 conference. So if you remember from part one, I talked about this 140 conference. What happened was after Boston, I was invited to go to LA, Detroit, and Hutchinson, Kansas. Can't really pronounce that well, but... And one of the interesting things about the LA event was the way that I told it, for whatever reason, really connected with the audience. There was this hushed silence when I got to a certain part of the story. And one of the people that had that happened to be listening at that time was this guy by the name of Filiberto. And he came up to us afterwards and he said, I really enjoyed your story. I'm a Mexican-American. I grew up here and it just connected deeply with me. And so we had lunch together, which was really nice. And afterwards, we said, oh, let's keep in touch. And we told him that I was coming back, uh, you know, the following year. And he said, well, let me help you set up some events in the area. One of them was at the KPCC radio station, and the other was at the Salvadoran Community Center. Filiberto comes and picks me up, and he takes me to Pico Union, which is the Salvadoran part of Los Angeles, sort of the heart of this Salvadoran community there. And we go to a Salvadoran organization or community center, and I walk in there, and I'm meeting all these people who are part of the FPL, which is the same organization the same rebel movement that my parents were. And I was really taken aback because here are the people that fought side by side with my parents. Whether they knew each other, I don't really know, but they were in the same group fighting for the same thing. And you know, one woman said, oh yeah, my mother fought as well and she died. And someone else had a brother who fought and... and you know, it was walking into this this stronghold, and so to speak. What happened next, it was probably the most meaningful part of this entire journey for, for myself. And that was, we had a, a meeting with maybe 10 to 15 members of the community who came in and just wanted to meet me. And Filiberto was explaining that you know, he was doing the introduction and he was saying that I was one of the disappeared children of El Salvador. And someone looked up and they said, oh, you're one of the disappeared? And what I understood was, you're one of the disappeared and you've come back to us. And the thing that just struck me from that moment was so many people disappeared during the war. We talked about the memorial wall that has 30,000 names on it. And no one ever saw those people again. I mean, when we're talking about disappeared, they were essentially killed. I think the, the number that's often cited is it was between seven or eight, I don't seven or 8,000 that disappeared. Yeah. And of that, up to 2,000 were children, possibly. It's, you know, it's all... Those numbers are a little hard to pin down. But these people, they just were taken and no one ever knew what happened to them. I mean, essentially they were killed or or adopted. You know, this was the first time that any of them were seeing someone who was quote unquote disappeared alive and healthy. I, you know, 
I'm sitting here trying to explain it and I just, I don't know how to put it into words, how much of a shock it was for me to see them kind of, I don't even know how, how much it meant to them. Maybe. You had mentioned was one of the women was missing her ch- child. Was that in that event? Yeah. One of the other women was missing her child. I think she had reunited with one and there was still one missing as well. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of, I guess to sum it all up, I'm walking into this community center with all these Salvadorans who fought beside my parents and then sort of like the, you know, this lost person coming back to them. And it was the first time I think that someone has said, Oh, you're Salvadoran. You're one of us, you know, returning back to us, which was very welcoming and nice. And the other thing that struck me about this group of Salvadorans, when they met me and they heard that I was doing the film and that I had been brought up in in sort of middle-class America, I think they really understood the opportunity there. They said to me or, or implied, you know, you're one of us and you have this amazing opportunity for to tell our story. They understood that dynamic in a way that I think the Salvadorans in El Salvador couldn't wrap their heads around or, or was too outside of their world or whatever. Or, or maybe just the American, the Salvadoran Americans are, are in a, a different, I don't know. I, 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 we could probably spend a whole podcast on, on this. Yeah. Well, maybe we will. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I wasn't there with you for this meeting, and it's, it sounded great. Um, but maybe it's simple to just say something to the effect of uh, that they saw an opportunity, you know. I think one of the cool things about your story is that you are in between worlds. And, and while you're Salvadoran and had this thing happen to you, when, when you speak an American audience is going to find you very relatable. You know, your, your upbringing is as apple pie as mine is, <laughs> quote unquote, you know, and therefore you can bring them inside the set of circumstances they otherwise would have a lot more trouble imagining. Well, that event, you know, the event at the Salvadoran Community Center really, you know, it was very profound for me just meeting those people and to see the impact. And it's something I still think about because it makes me feel like it, when I started, I was just doing it for me, you know, in this miracle. But now I sort of see, I represent, even if it's indirectly, many of these people and I get to be their voice. And I think that that opportunity is what excites me about this project. So that was our first event in LA. And then the second event, it was at the radio station KPCC, and they had just opened a community center as well, or some sort of community-oriented space where they were holding events. And we were they have some of, type of series called Crawford Family Forum, um, right. where they do a lot of high-profile guests, and um, and ours was kind of hastily arranged, but. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I'm amazed that Filiberto could pull it off in four yeah. days. I mean, that yeah. was awesome. And we, um, you know, special thanks to him because he 
he's really helped us with a lot of things. It, it was hastily arranged on our part because we didn't, you know, didn't give him much notice, not on his part. <laughs> anyway, it was a great event. We just showed a couple clips from the film. There were members of the Salvadoran community. Um, as we said, it was kind of, you know, thrown together. We didn't have a lot of time to organize things and hopefully next time we'll be able to plan better. But we were, or Filiberto was able to arrange for several members of the press to come. So we had, at first I did an interview with Channel 22 in Los Angeles, which went on the evening news that night, which was very exciting. Oh, actually, no, it came on for your birthday, right? Yeah, yeah, it came on. It came on, like, they teased it one night, and then a couple nights later, they had cut a piece on my birthday. So I was on the news in in L.A. for a night, which was kind of fun. And then the other person that was there from the press was uh, a member of, what, what was his organization? It's called Quantume, and it's like a blogging organization. But what's funny about it is it sort of shows you how much the press has changed. It, it had these different phases where it started out where just a few people saw it on the Quantum A site and then on Huffington Post. It got much bigger and it was a very liberal audience viewing it and very friendly. And then uh, a couple of days later it hit AOL and it was not a liberal audience and <laughs> not all that friendly. In fact, sometimes outwardly racist, <laughs> commenting on it. Right. So it, it had these different phases of, of readers that um, reacted to it, which was fascinating. I'm just going to you know, do a book plug here, I guess. There's a great book that explains how this happens and why it happens, which is called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. And the, the only reason I bring it up is because it kind of explains exactly what happened, where a lot of these blogs are looking for traffic and they're they're trying to promote it to bigger audiences and what they're looking for is this very visceral reaction either positively or negatively towards the thing and we certainly got that reaction it was interesting they either fell on one of two sides some people were saying how brave my parents were for doing what they did and others were criticizing them saying how dare they put their children in in danger like that and I spent a lot of time responding to those people or to the comments. And, you know, my my mother was concerned at first that I was spending too much time trying to... Your mother and John were concerned. And John were concerned. <laughs> well, some of them, I mean, some of them were outwardly racist. And, yeah. And they would form these huge opinions based on very little information. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of them were like, go back to Panama. They're like nonsensical, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, you know, it, it did. None of that happened until it hit AOL. I mean, Huffington Post was all all complimentary. Not that everything should always be all complimentary, but right. but when it hit AOL, like we got a negative response. You know, it was for me. It was a little freaky to experience it. You know, well, despite John and and my mom's warnings, I went and responded to a lot of people's comments. What I was really trying to do is say, well, I think you misunderstood what was going on here and this is the way that I see it. You know, and the reason I did that was really just to have my voice in there and so that people could go back and so it's not just this wall of negative comments that I'm actually going in there and 
giving my two cents and saying, well, yes, okay, I see your point about this, but have you thought about this? And it's not for the people who hate what we're doing because it's you can't really change their mind, but it's for the people who are going to appreciate that kind of thing. And in fact, there was this one woman who who went back and said, I saw what you wrote to everyone else, and I just think it's so great the way that you're diffusing all of this negativity with your words. So at the end of the day, I think we both were kind of surprised by this reaction. And it was an interesting sort of trial run to see how certain themes played and, and uh, to just see how different audiences would react to it, you know, and, and the thing that was encouraging, although not always easy is people reacted strongly one way or another. And and that's um, that means that they paid attention. You know, it it means that people didn't just turn the channel and wanted to engage with your story. It was fascinating to me to just see like that was like a really weird modern media experience. The article didn't come out right away. We sort of forgot about it, and then somebody called and said, "Oh, it's on. You're on the Huffington Post. Did you know this?" <laughs> and and um. And then to, a few days after that, just 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 have the reaction flip so viscerally um, that you know in the comments go from very positive to like people making these huge judgments about your life and your family and 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 making these anonymous nasty you know gutless statements <laughs> just like on a dime you know um, it was weird is what is there anything you'd say about any of those comments I mean it. I think I had, not that I was prepared for it, but I've been online enough to know that that kind of thing happens and that I shouldn't take it personally. And people are going to say the most ridiculous things because they haven't paid enough attention to it. Despite all that negativity, I was kind of excited because this was the first time that what I was doing and sharing my story connected with a larger audience. So you go back to Anna's miracle and I'd been writing on that for three or four years and I hadn't got any reaction really. I mean, I probably had 40 people reading it at, at, you know, the peak. That's not a bad thing, but the reason that I set out to do it was to tell the story and to get it in front of a wider audience. And unfortunately, you can't do that without pissing off a few people. <laughs> you know, every even the most well-intentioned film has critics, you know, and I guess I understand that that's part of the equation. I think it's it's a, a topic for a future podcast, too. Not your reaction, but just the the subject matter here is so loaded to an American audience, you know. The American side was the opposite side of your family's side and uh there were not there were four american casualties you know there were four marines that died but there were 70 or 80,000 salvadorans so we didn't have boots on the ground per se but but it's still you know it was very wrapped up in Ronald Reagan's legacy and it's a good topic for another podcast after LA was the Robert Kirshner Memorial Human Rights Lecture at the University of Chicago this took place in May of 2012. The lecture was given by 
myself, John, and my mother, and we were talking about the film, the book, and just some of my personal experiences. And a few months before when this came up, we were talking about how we would present, and we decided that we would get the first eight minutes of the film really tight, and then that would leave room for my mother and I to simply just talk about our feelings and our experiences. And what you guys came up with was just this really nice, concise opening bit to the film and also our own story. So that was really cool to see. And you did that with Brooks Larson. Who's given a lot of his time to edit it together and um, should be mentioned. And and a cool sort of segue into this lecture is that a friend of the Kirshners saw the article in Huffington Post and pointed it out to the Kirshner family. And Robert Kirshner was the worker from Physicians for Human Rights that made the phone call to your parents to, to finally present you with the information that um, your family had. I'm not saying this right at all. <laughs> so years later, this person who was instrumental in my reunion we were reconnected or connected for the first time with his family and we got to speak at a lecture that was created in his memory for all the work that he did and they found you through the the newspaper article in the Huffington right. Post so and, uh, you know again it's one of these so it wasn't it wasn't all bad reaction no it wasn't <laughs> and and it was you know, last time in the last episode, you talked about a closed loop and it was sort of this open and closed loop where the man who helped us so many years before we got to honor him and speak to his family. One of the themes that I chose to speak about was his legacy. And I was really trying to say that uh, I am his living legacy. You know, or I am representative of the work that he has done in the past and how much it meant to me and our family as a whole. It was such a special gathering and moment for all of us, not just for the film, but also for, for the book and for everything that my parents have done. It was really neat because I think they, um, the University of Chicago holds this lecture annually and Robert Kirshner he he passed away several years ago and his, he had, his wife was there and his Three adult sons were there. He was one of the founding members of the at the university of this department. They have a human rights department. So all of his colleagues, his former colleagues were there. And it was neat to hear from his sons. We also went to dinner with them afterwards. Uh, I, I, one of the sons told me a story about how he was, you know, he'd be in the room when his father had made some of these phone calls to the families of uh, Salvadoran disappeared children and, and just how how much it sort of meant to the family to still see the results of their father's work. And, you know, you, like you said, you're this living legacy. And, and how much he, how much he struggled with that as well. You know, he would make these phone calls and how he would hang up and he was sort of internally struggling with, did I do the right thing, you know, in, in bringing this sort of dumping this entire story on the people and how much it meant, to the family years later to find out that it, it did in fact mean a lot. I think the other really neat thing about speaking at sort of a human rights lecture is a lot of these topics are very dark and you're dealing with mass graves and a lot of his work yeah, dealt with genocide, genocide. Yeah. yeah, and these very difficult subject matters. And 
my mom and I talked about this going into it, so we decided to call the, the topic of the lecture the joys and challenges of finding family because we really wanted to present this idea that it was a joy even though it gave us some challenges and that I guess to show the a lighter side or the you know a different side to human rights than this very dark difficult material that usually gets talked about well and I just wanted to add it was really cool for me I mean, my father does, he's a, a cancer doctor and, and, uh, that's hard work too. And, and I, I've always felt like, you know, it sort of takes a family to support that type of work. And, and I have two brothers and, uh, it was just neat to see this family with three adult sons and, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I could relate to them a lot and it was neat to get to go to dinner and sit with them afterwards. And, and so that was cool for me. Cool. Yeah, and then we did a little sightseeing in the rain. <laughs> and then the day after we left, I, I don't know if you stayed an extra day, but the day after I left, it was beautiful and sunny. And But it was a very special trip for all of us, I think, to share the film, to meet them, to talk about everything that had happened. So that was definitely a highlight for, for everyone. It was great. Well, I think that is our show for today. Okay. All right. So you can, as always, you can subscribe to the podcast by going to identifyingnelson.com. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can leave us a comment by going to Facebook and searching for Identifying Nelson. Or if you have something maybe a little more personal to say, you can send us an email at podcast at identifyingnelson.com. Both John and I received that. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to share it with anyone you think would also enjoy it. Please tune in next week where we will be talking about what is next for the film and where we are going. Easy for you to say. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) thanks for listening. Thank you. Los vientos